Well, good morning, everyone. Are you doing okay? Yeah, man. What about some beautiful weather that we have outside? It is awesome. Well, it is great to be with you all again this weekend. Um, I flew in Friday morning. I was able to bring a buddy with me. Um, I met him last fall when I first got out there to Southeastern in North Carolina. We were on the same floor with each other in the dorms. He is one of my good friends at um, school. He is from about 30 minutes outside of Richmond, Virginia, in a little town called Ashland. Um, he and I are both in the pastoral ministry majors there at the school. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Mr. Nick Thurston. So let's go ahead and give him a warm welcome. Thank you all so much, and a warm welcome in Chester I've had the entire weekend. I've been blessed enough to be able to meet and greet and eat with some of you, and it has just been a joy and a pleasure. Ever since I've known Ridge, he has always talked about his hometown and his home church, and I just admire his love for, for you people and everything going on here. So I'm overjoyed to get to finally see his hometown and his home church, not only to be able to worship with you all, but to be able to open God's word with you all. Without further ado, let me pray us open. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing me and Rich here safely. I thank you for the great service that this church is doing in its community, for all the outreach and events happening here, for the blessings that you're pouring out through these people. I pray for the reading of your word today and for our diving into it and the exposition of your message. I pray that ears would be open and that hearts would be softened to receive your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you all a question to get you thinking this morning. In your faith, in your walk with Jesus, in the way you understand things, do you fall more on the side of saying, I've said I believed, and that's it, no works are required, and I'm good saying that I've believed? Or do you lean on the side of, I need to be always doing good things, and teaching classes, and working and serving, and constantly be moving, because I need to meet a standard that is set by the Bible, the church, my family, there's a pressure that you need to meet, so you work to meet a standard. I don't know where everyone falls. One of those is going to connect more with people, and we can probably think of people that fit in those categories of someone that has just said they believed and they're comfortable with that. But I think neither one of those extremes is healthy faith. I think that healthy faith, as shown to us by the Bible, is going to be that we are working and moving forward, but that we're not trying to meet a standard. It's that our work is coming from our knowledge and our love of God, that it's a fuel for us. And we're going to open James chapter 2 today, if you'd like to turn with me. It will also be on the screen. James chapter 2, we'll start in verse 14. And James is going to look at what true faith that is moving is. But before we open, I hate to delay the reading of God's word. Before we open, to aid us in walking through this passage, there's two tensions that I'm going to need to address that will come up with our reading today. And it's the use of two words that Paul and James use differently and that I think I've found in the church people have a stronger understanding of how Paul uses them than how James uses them. The two words are works and justification. You see, Paul and James are writing to two very different audiences. Paul and James are both standing to try to defend this orthodox, right understanding of faith that is fueled by your love of God and is fueled by what Jesus has done for you on the cross, your profession that you believe that he was the final sacrifice and that no works are required of you, and out of your motivation and your love for Jesus, you pursue righteousness in your life. That orthodox understanding is being defended by both of these men. But they're writing to two different extremes. You see, Paul is writing to these people, and he's standing right on the line of orthodox faith saying, you don't need to earn it, y'all. You don't need to get circumcised. You don't need to follow Jewish law. No matter how good you try to get before you profess Christ, you'll never earn it. It's through faith alone. 
The verses that will ring familiar to us with this are like Galatians 2.16, where Paul says, You know that a, price, that a person has been justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he's writing these people that are influenced by Jews trying to impose works on them. The same is true in Ephesians and Romans. For by grace, this is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the theme of no works is evident in Paul, but in James, we're going to encounter that works are necessary. However, with James, we'll find that he's not advocating that you need to do works to earn salvation. He's writing to people that are already saved. James is writing to this person in the audience that has professed faith in Jesus and is idle. They lack movement in their faith, and we wonder, do they really believe and have change in their heart? Because true faith makes you a new creation. And so Paul actually believes that faith changes. He's going to agree with James that faith will produce good works. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith is changing us to manifest us to good works. Galatians 5.6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. So this is Paul addressing post-salvation, faith is active and moving in a person's life. Hopefully we've addressed some of the tensions with work. Uh, now for the bigger tension is justification. It's this word that Paul uses and we understand it to mean salvation. That's how Paul uses it. It's the moment that a person is raised from their old state in death, in sin, and they're moved by a sovereign act of God up to life in Christ. Someone professes faith in Jesus and says, you know what? I believe that I don't need to do anything, that I couldn't do anything to earn my salvation and to become holy enough to make me to meet God's standard, but I believe that Jesus did. I believe that Jesus accomplished all of that on the cross as my final sacrifice. I profess that he died for me and that he raised for me, thus defeating sin and death. I believe that, and that is your justification. But in James, he uses it in a different sense. Remember, James is writing to people that are already saved, but they're just idle in their faith. His use of justification means counted as righteous in your life. So it's not looking at the condition of your salvation. It's looking at the condition of your heart in the sense of are you righteous in your heart and is your faith motivating you? It's kind of a courtroom use. It was a Jewish courtroom use, actually. So imagine this. If a murder trial defendant gets up there and says, I'm not guilty, the judge isn't going to just take him on what he says out of his mouth. He's going to analyze the evidence of the case. He's going to analyze, okay, well, where were you that night? What were you doing? Are there any, any pieces of evidence of the scene? Just like if someone says, I believe in Jesus, our first thing is to think, okay, you do. That's awesome. I'm really glad about that. But if the marks of your life don't meet up with that profession, we often wonder, and it's not healthy to judge. I'm not advocating the judging, but I'm pointing out that that's a natural tendency for us. That that analyzation of someone's righteousness is something that's natural for people. And it's something that is biblical. Let's go to Matthew 12, 33 to 37, where uh, Jesus uses this word justification. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree will be known by its fruit. 
I'm going to skip to verse 37 here. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So our inner being, our inner heart, is shown by the things which are our fruit, namely our works. You don't know that someone is righteous if they're bearing works that are in accordance with unrighteousness, correct? It doesn't make sense. Just like I've heard people talk about Ridge Highly saying that he loves God dearly, it's showing that he's bearing fruit in accordance with righteousness, in accordance with him having seen God and known God and God working in his heart. I don't normally name names, but it was just something that happened this morning that was convenient. So justification in James is not salvation. People are already saved in James. We're not talking about getting saved and requiring works for that. We're talking about your true faith and living it out as a follower of Jesus. What does that look like? So with that... I want to dive into the text now. We're going to start in verse 14 where James says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, that makes the tension pretty clear because our first inclination is, oh my gosh, is James saying that our faith requires work to be saved? No. James actually presupposes that faith and faith alone saves. Let me show you how he presupposes that. Can James ask, can that faith save him without believing that faith saves? He can't ask that. He has to believe faith and faith alone saves to ask the question, can that faith save him? That faith is just a previous reference to the faith described in the first question, faith that doesn't have works. And when he's talking about faith that doesn't have works, he actually says, if someone says he has faith, Which means he's not talking about if someone has true faith, but he doesn't have works. James is actually calling that person a hypocrite. And the best way I can convey this in English and how we speak now is James is saying, if someone says he has faith, in, you know, quotation marks, he doesn't have real, true, regenerate, knowing God deeply in his heart, faith. It's just a head profession that Jesus exists. It's just acknowledging God's existence. It's something in the head alone that has not moved to the heart. So these two questions right here is what James seeks to answer throughout this passage by use of a parable, by use of weighing this spectrum that I've just talked about, which is going to be very important. I'll reference the spectrum of someone who has head knowledge of God only, but lacks movement, and someone who has works, but lacks the proper motivation. And he's going to go through two Old Testament stories after that, showing how faith works out. So his little story in verses 15 to 17 proves his point that faith without works is dead. He says this in verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in verse 15, we see that a person is lowly, they cannot provide themselves, they don't have clothing, they don't have food, and upon seeing that person, One of us says, go in peace, be warm and filled. That means we're saying with our mouths, we believe that you should be taken care of. However, upon saying we believe that, we have shown nothing on our part in way of action to get them taken care of. So do we really believe that they should be warmed and filled if we don't take action towards that? It's just lip service. And actually, even deeper here, if you'll allow me to get nerdy for a second, the verbs warm and filled in that quotation are called passive, which is like if you have a modern car, you know how it will lock itself after a certain period of time? 
you didn't hit the lock button. The car just locked itself. The car did the action of locking to itself. These verbs are like that. The command actually says, go in peace, warm yourself, and fill yourself. Which, if we take into the context of the verse, this person is lacking in clothes and lacking in food. How can we say to them, knowing that they are lacking, warm yourself and fill yourself, when we know they can't do that? It just exposes how false this belief is and how singed and hard our hearts are towards it if all we have is a head profession. And so, using that illustration, James answers his own question from verse 14 in verse 17, saying, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Brothers and sisters, let us not live in dead faith. So, verse 18, James is going to analyze the spectrum here from 18 to verse 20 that I just talked about. And he's going to talk about this person over here. Someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. James, I'm doing things in according with righteousness. I am moving. I am acting. I am on the path to sanctification. I am being a good person outwardly. But James answers, I will show you my faith by my works. Because God doesn't care about the action. He cares about our heart position. You can do all the great actions you want and never meet the standard of God's holiness. It's the heart position that matters. And that's what James is getting at. We need to be truly changed in our hearts so that we move forward in works. So that we act in the created works that we were created in Christ Jesus for. Then he talks to the person on the other side of the spectrum in verse 19. To this person, you believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. What that God is one statement there in verse 19 calls back to is Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. It was a prayer that Jews had to pray every morning and every evening. It was very important for them. It called them as a hedged people, God's covenant called people apart from the idolatrous nations around them. It reminded them that the Lord their God was the one God and that all the idols in Israel were false gods. Uh, It was a very important prayer to them. Deuteronomy 6.4 reads this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jews prayed that every morning and every evening. So he's calling out those Jews that would know that. You believe that God is one. Congratulations for having head knowledge and professing with your mouth that God is one. Even the demons have to believe that. Even the spiritual enemies opposed to God, whose sole purpose in their existence is to pull people away from God and try to afflict us and pull us from our created purpose and unity and love of God and confuse us and lie to us, even they cannot get away from acknowledging that the Lord on high is the one true God. Look at Luke 8 right here. This is the story of uh, Legion. When Jesus is coming up from the lake and the demon-possessed man runs down from him and Legion, when he saw Jesus, cried out and he fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg of you, do not torment me. You see, even this demon-possessed man, Jesus hadn't done anything to him. Jesus was getting out of a boat and the demon is compelled to run down to him in nervousness and fear. What do you have to do with me, Jesus? And he acknowledges Jesus as deity here, son of the most high God. He acknowledges Jesus in bodily form as God, even as a demon, in opposition to Jesus, is so nervous that he acknowledges Jesus is the one God. And he asks Jesus, do not torment me because he knows at the end of all things that the demons will be tormented in hell and judged for their evil acts. 
They can't get away from head knowledge. So the people who only have a head knowledge of God and don't let God into their hearts are no better off than the demons that also have that head knowledge. Because the key to understanding this is the second half of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.5, which will be more familiar to you all as the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. That is where we've moved from acknowledging that God is one in our head to our right relationship, loving him. Because love in the Bible is a very active verb. It's not puppy love. It's not acknowledging something off in a distance. It's not just saying, oh, I love you. It's been watered down in English. It was active and movement, showing that you cared and modeling that with your actions, your words, your choices. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's what the demons didn't have, and that's what these believers that James is writing to didn't have, was a true active love of God. So then we get into two Old Testament stories that would have been familiar to these Jewish believers who have fallen stale in their faith, uh, Abraham and Rahab. And they're an example of the two categories of works. And if you'll allow me to divert for a second, I should have covered this. There's two categories of works that James writes about in his book. We're going to go to verse 127 here in James. And it's, it's this. This sums up the whole book. Verse 127. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is saying true faith manifests itself in two things, two actions from you. Your condition of your heart shows itself in this, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, which means serving the lowly and downtrodden in society, serving as a broad category, and then to keep yourself unstained from the world. The stains of the world being sin, meaning to keep yourself unstained from sin, you would be following God's law and God's call to holiness, righteousness, and sanctification in your life. Therefore, the two broad categories of works that James is talking about are service and obedience. Well, he just so happens in this passage to give us two Old Testament examples of Abraham who obeyed and Rahab who served. Let's look at Abraham first. Verse 21 begins with, Was Abraham our father, was not Abraham our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Okay, so remember James's use of justification here. It was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't mean that Abraham was saved by his works. It means that his works showed his heart condition, that in his heart he was righteous. Faith came first. Before Abraham went up on that mountain, he believed that God was one in his heart. Because remember what Abraham tells to the people in his camp before he goes up on the mountain when he was with Isaac. We are going up to sacrifice and we will come back. He believed in his heart that God would either raise Isaac from the dead after telling him to sacrifice him, or he believed that God would provide a new son, or he believed that God would provide some other son. He had trust in God to provide. Either way, his heart moved first, and thus his actions were freed to follow suit. Now, faith is working and active with this all along. He was counted righteous by his works because they showed his heart condition. And we see in verse 22, faith was active all along with his works. Faith was completed by his works, meaning that like I just told you, it began with faith and it began with a knowledge of God. And thus he was freed to flow out in his obedience of God. 
So let's look at how Paul handles this, because I think it's going to be enlightening to some of the tensions here. Uh, this is Romans 4:20 to 25, where Paul is also citing this to show justification by faith. No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, meaning provide Abraham offspring as numerous as the stars. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Pause. When I read counted to him as righteousness, that's the use of justification that I've been giving you this entire time. So, yeah. Paul just doesn't use that word because in his writing, justification is salvation, so he fleshes it out by saying that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Upon looking back at Abraham's righteous actions, we say he, in fact, was righteousness. He, in fact, was righteous. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe, who raised from the dead uh, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, there's Paul's use of justification, raised for our salvation, raised for our being saved. But I really love that it points out, that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, because I want to ask you this. If Abraham had said, God, I have faith in you, I trust you with all things. I know that you're able to fulfill your promise through your son. Uh, but you, ac- you asked me to sacrifice my son. And even though you provided me a son when I was too old, I'm going to withhold my son from sacrifice and disobey your commandment here because I doubt that you can provide another son. Would he have been able to say that? God, I have faith in you, but I'm withholding my son. God, I have faith with you, but I don't think you can provide another son. I don't think you can raise him from the dead if you sacrifice. I've seen the mighty things you've done. But uh, I'm going to take this one, if you don't mind. I'm going to rely on myself, if you don't mind. That's not true faith. That is holding God in your head and saying, yeah, in my heart, I still trust myself here. Yeah, in my heart, I still need to take care of this. But Abraham, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Because he had that true faith that James is writing for. And it wasn't because Abraham was trying to meet God's approval through the works and saying, gosh, I really wish that I can gain my righteousness through getting approval. Is that my stop time or what? <laughs> Anyways. I'm not trying to earn God's approval by by trying to earn justification from his works. The works flowed naturally from his faith. His obedience came from his trust in God. And what's important to unlocking to this is the last part of verse 23. He was called a friend of God. Abraham was in relationship with God. He knew him deeply and personally, and not just as a distant creator who, like some modern deist, would say, okay, there's a creator, but he's not active in the world. He doesn't care about it. No, Abraham was a friend of the living and active and loving God, and thus was fueled by his friendship and relational knowledge of him to act in obedience. Let's go to verse 24. And this is James's understanding of justification being counted to his righteousness. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This verse has caused more tension in Christians than any other verse in this passage because in our mind we think salvation and we think that James is trying to say, you see that a person is saved by works and not by faith alone. 
As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, thought that and thought about throwing out James because of that verse because it was such a stumbling block to him. But let me encourage you, remember we've worked through James's use of justification and now he's not writing to Christians who are not saved yet. He's writing to people that are saved and who need to be counted righteous and need transformation in their heart. So you see that a person is counted righteous by works and not by faith alone. Because by your faith, by saying you believe in Jesus, no one's going to call you righteous by that alone if you lack movement and you're idle in your head knowledge of him. So he goes into a second Old Testament example in verse 25. This is Rahab the prostitute, which I'll do a brief recap of the story if you're not familiar with it. When Israel was about to enter the promised land, there was a big city, Jericho, and they sent two scouts ahead of them to look into Jericho. They came up on Rahab's house. She was a harlot at the time, which is not a very reputable profession. And she had an inn there. They stayed in her inn, and she hid them away from the authorities in Jericho who were looking to kill them. Uh, She hid them and she helped them escape and she sent the authorities the other way. But her motivation in doing this was not to hedge her bets. Her motivation was not to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I know that these Israelites are coming, so I'm going to hide these two guys. That way, in case the Israelites come, they won't kill me like they'll kill everyone else. But I'm going to hide them and that way I don't have anything to lose with my hometown. And I'll be safe even if they aren't successful in taking the city. She says this in Judges 2, and here's what she says about it. She acknowledges to these Israelites, listen, the reason I'm hiding you is because I heard of what you did to Egypt, and I heard of what you did to the kings on the way here, and I know surely from those mighty works that your Lord is one. She was motivated because she had heard about the things that God had done and had known that God was the real God and her love and her admiration and her knowledge of him in her heart is what motivated her choice to serve these men. Not her motivation to be safe. It was her knowledge of God first that motivated her work of serving them. Then verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit of dead, so faith apart from works is dead. That's his second answer to the first question, can that faith save him? No, faith that is apart from works is mere head knowledge. It's not healthy. It's dead. So we've worked through a hard passage here, some really hard and convicting verses, but what's the point of it all? I don't want you to think that Pastor Mike and Ridge brought his buddy to come up here and preach. You need to go do good works. You need to give money. You need to serve all of that. That's not the point of this. My point of this is that neither one of these is healthy and nourishing for your soul. That if you're left in a mere head knowledge, you got nothing. It leaves you broken. It leaves you sick. It leaves you in the old sins in which you once walked. And I don't want that for you. I want you to know God deeply in your heart and to have your knowledge of him be able to fuel your service and your obedience. Just like having works alone is not healthy and you can never earn salvation that way and you'll always be left in brokenness, so is mere head knowledge alone shallow and unfulfilling. So the whole point of this, I think, is to look at these people's motivation. Abraham and Rahab knew God deeply. How are you supposed to serve and obey someone that you don't know? If you have a weak understanding of God and a weak comprehension of who he is, and you're just here because it's a small town and it's normal to go to church on Sunday, but you have no grasp of how important God is and how he has loved you and worked in your life, how motivated will your servants and obedience be? 
It's not fulfilling and it's not lasting. I pray that you would know God deeply like these Old Testament examples do and like James's conviction is to do. See, Abraham was called a friend of God, and that's where everything stemmed from. Let your relationship with God motivate the change in your life. There's an example of this that I'll cite from John Piper. He looks at 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, and he distinguishes two categories of people out of this 1 Thessalonians verse. He says this in 1 Thessalonians. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, I'm I'm not here talking about sexual immorality. What I want to look at is the two categories created in this verse. Control yourself in holiness and honor, right? That's the biggest thing. Lead a godly life in service and obedience, Unlike the Gentiles who do not know God. Why did Paul need to say who do not know God? Because the Gentiles thing didn't matter. Gentiles could be grafted into the promise of Jesus Christ just like anyone else. Though they were not Israel, Christ's sacrifice is open to everyone. No one in here is of Jewish descent. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. What matters is that these people do not know God. Knowing God is what motivates your ability to control your own body, to act in service and obedience, to have a moving faith. Without knowing God and trying to say, okay, guest preacher came in, I'm going to pursue service and works because he said my faith needed to be active. Notice what your motivation was for that. Your motivation was you had a hyped up sermon from a guest that you don't see all the time. So then by Tuesday, you'll probably be burnt out. Maybe Wednesday if you're pretty holy. I want you to have a lasting fire in your soul that's not reliant on anything said from the pulpit and that's not reliant on anything but the eternal and invisible God who is a rock on which you can stand, who is a firm foundation, who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Here's what Piper says about this, about the importance of knowing God. He says, you can read theology for 10 hours a day, 40 years long. And not know God as beautiful, all-satisfying, highest treasure of your life. Who cares about knowing God the way the devil knows him? The devil hates everybody. He uses his knowledge of God to hate people. We're talking about knowing God here in 1 Thessalonians. Knowing him relationally. They don't know him. They don't really know him as who he is. Infinitely valuable. Infinitely beautiful. Infinitely satisfying. Highest treasure of your life. There are more pleasures in his right hand, more eternal joys in his presence than in 10,000 sexual trips. The question is, do you know that? End quote. Do you know God to be more valuable than all of those things? Do you know in the face of temptation, do you know in the face of affliction that God is better and that he can provide and that he is trustworthy and that he is worthy of servants, that he is worthy of obedience? Because if you don't know those things, You have no motivation to act in true faith. So get to know your God in the prayer closet and in his word. That is the most important part that I take away from this text on having active faith. Because without that foundation, you won't be able to trust him actively and you will not serve him naturally. Your service will be motivated by earning works. And your trust will be weak because if you don't know God, who do you have to trust in? 
Abraham knew him deeply. That was why he was motivated to trust him. Rahab had seen the wonderful things that he had done for Israel, and she was motivated to trust him, and it manifested in their service. So get to know your God deeply so that you can trust him actively and serve him naturally. Now, for those of you who don't know God at all yet and are sitting in this pew not having head knowledge or works, I'm telling you that this is fulfillment and that this is truth and this is life and that this is why people were created. It's why our soul was made. It is natural and it is so freeing to be freed from the pressures and the pushes of the world in sin and in death and to be aligned rightly with God to walk in this natural faith which we were created for. But for those of you who do follow Jesus, I'll say this. Paul's motivation in Philippians 3.12 is a perfect example of how to carry this out in your life. He says this in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained this righteousness or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And that should be our motivation in all of this. That I haven't obtained it, God. I'm not there yet as a follower of Jesus. Pastor Mike isn't there yet. Ridge isn't there yet. None of us are. But I'm pressing on for this goal. I'm not working because society and church and my family told me to. The reason that I'm working is because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Knowing God and his love for me in my heart moves me to press on to righteousness. Let me pray us out while the worship team comes up. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your message here for everything you have said. I pray for those that don't know you yet, that you would work in their heart and that they would come to know you for it's fulfilling and it's truth and it's life. And for those of us who are stale in our faith and who want to know you more, I pray that you would motivate us and lead us to service and obedience. Help us to know you deeply and relationally as these Old Testament fathers did. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. What an incredible message we've been challenged with this morning. You know, we've got a lot of things going on. We've been doing a lot, but you know what? Why do we do it? Well, that's you. The only reason I do it is because I love the Lord. Well, we give him a time of things like that. So, y'all, we've got a lot of things going on tonight. Uh, but the Holy Spirit challenges us, saying, why are you doing this? You know, it's just uh, because God loves us so much. How can we not serve the God who loves us? Like-